Hello everyone, welcome to Refugees on Air. This is our latest episode with Janine Horani. Hello Janine. Hi, how are you going? <laughs> really good. <laughs> yep. um, yourself? Yeah, good, thanks. Excited to be here. Yes, we're really glad to have you here. Yeah, we're like super excited yep. for this interview. Yeah, <laughs> when, we, when we found out about you, we read your email and we we're like, oh my God, this girl is like goals. You know? <laughs> yeah, she literally. Does, she does so much and we're like, yes, we're going to have her on the show. Yeah, so we're really glad you contacted us, which yep. is like even more cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, let's get started. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, yep, so my mum's Lebanese and she grew up in a 14-year civil war in Beirut mm-hmm. um, and my dad's Palestinian and he was actually born in a um, Palestinian refugee camp in Syria um, and so were all his siblings and that's where my grandparents actually met and got married. They both um, immigrated to um, Bahrain, which is this tiny island near Saudi Arabia that no one's heard of <laughs> um, and that's where I was born and that's where my sister was born and then when I was three we came to Australia. Mm-hmm. Yep. Can you describe to us the journey that you took to come to Australia? Yep, so we actually arrived by plane, um, Mm -hmm. which um, doesn't get... I don't think a lot of people know that some refugees come by plane. We don't all Mm. come by boat. (laughs) And actually, my parents started the paperwork when my mum was pregnant with me. Mm -hmm. Um, And my dad had to have an interview at the Australian Embassy as part of the process. And because he was a refugee at the time and there was no Australian Embassy in Bahrain where they were living... He had two options, to go to Saudi Arabia or to go to Dubai to have his interview. Um, And neither of the countries would give him a visa to go and do his interview because um, he was a refugee. Mm -hmm. And so, like, it was so lucky he had a friend who knew someone in the Greek embassy who got him a visa to Athens. So he had to fly all the way to Athens to go to the Australian embassy to have his interview. When I was three, we ended up coming over. That's when everything was finalised. And, yeah, we came to Australia. Mm Yeah. Did you know that you were born stateless and did you understand what it meant at the time? When did you come to terms with it, I think? So a stateless person, um, just to clarify, someone who's not recognised as a citizen of mm-hmm. any country. Yeah. Um, and so I was born stateless without a passport and so was my dad. So it was three generations of statelessness. Mm-hmm. And I became an Australian when I was six years old. Mm-hmm. And like I knew at that point that I didn't have a passport before and mm-hmm. I knew that I was getting a passport by becoming Australian. But I don't think I really realised, like, what it actually means to be stateless and Mm. how important having a state is and how pivotal it is to your identity. Um, And not having a state for six years of your life is a really long time. And even now, even though I am Australian and I'm a proud Australian, sometimes I do feel a bit um, like a nomad because for so long I was essentially nothing. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, that must have been, like... It's such a big like part of your identity to know where you belong. And yeah, I think, and you, you know, from. there's so many people that are stateless nowadays and it must be so hard to be able to, to figure out where you belong. You yeah, know. definitely. What was it like for you to move to a whole new country like Australia? So we arrived in 1997 mm-hmm. and it was a lot easier back then than I think it is now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was still very hard. But when we arrived, for example, I, my dad tells this amazing story where because we had all our papers done before we came. When we arrived um, at the airport, the guy at passport control just looked at our papers, stamped a few things and said, welcome home, sir, to Mm. my dad. Mm. And my dad, who was, I don't know, in his late 20s at the time, had no one had ever said that before in his life because he'd been stateless his whole life. 
and he was like, Janine, like no one had ever said welcome home to me before in my life and here's this man at passport control before I'd even entered Australia mm -hmm. um, saying welcome home. And um, like that wouldn't, I don't think that would ever happen now, like mm. given the narrative that we currently have around immigrants and around refugees. Um, but it was still hard, like my parents did go through a lot and even me, like I was, um, I, my body got physically ill when we arrived. So my tongue became really swollen and my mum took me to the doctor and the doctor said that my body was in shock from arriving to a new country and um, in hindsight my sister and I always talk about it and we say that because my parents didn't feel comfortable speaking Arabic to us in public we spoke Arabic at home and maybe I didn't know which tongue to use like yeah. the, the yeah. Arabic yeah. one or the English one mm. so yeah wow well yeah. <laughs> especially at a young age like that you know it's, yeah. it's yeah. always difficult when you yeah. move to a new country and to get physically ill as well oh god i can't imagine what that yeah. must have been like yeah. i think that, that when the passport control guy uh said that to your dad it really you know i feel like it really hit home and it kind of at that time it's it spoke volume about australia's humanitarian scheme and you know it was really it was really generous but i think right now we need more be, of that. Yeah, yeah we need we a lot more need so much more of that and like my dad loves Australia. He's like the mm. most patriotic Australian ever <laughs> because of that. Mm. And I kind of look at him and I'm like, but, you know, you still struggled a lot, but you still love Australia so much. But it gave him something that nowhere else could. Exactly. So like a country and a home and an identity and a passport and everything. So, yeah. yeah. What are some of the difficulties that you and your family faced when you settled here in Australia? So as I mentioned before, like we, my parents were too worried to speak Arabic to us yeah. in public, and I think post nine eleven that it became even worse. Mm. So like we never spoke Arabic in yeah. public, and that was quite hard in terms of like staying in touch with our culture. Mm. But more than that, my parents um, both very qualified before we arrived. So my mum had a master's degree, and my dad had an undergrad degree, and they both struggled a lot to find work. Um, mm. And my dad said he was working in um, positions where people less qualified than him were his boss, but he couldn't complain because he didn't have an option. Mm -hmm. um, my mum was a teacher at the time and she struggled to find work and she went to a recruitment agency to see how she can, to help her yep. find some work. And um, they took one look at her CV and they were like, they pretty much whitewashed it. They were like, remove mm. that you're a newly arrived immigrant, remove you speak Arabic, remove this, remove that. Wow. So they pretty much made, like de-identified all her cultural attributes. Yep. And then she started getting job offers. So it just goes to show, like, if mm. you um, show that you are an immigrant or that you speak a different language, it's so much harder to get a job, which mm. is um, quite depressing when you think about it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think, you know, all the qualifications that our parents and, you know, our family friends get in Middle Eastern countries and the countries that they grew up in, I feel like when they come here they become so underestimated yeah. by the qualifications in western countries and i think it's such a shame you know and we can also relate our family did really struggle to find job when we came to settle here um because of that reason yeah, yeah. there's actually a home video of us hmm. at the zoo at melbourne zoo yeah and my dad was it was like when we first first arrived and my dad was speaking to us in arabic and hmm. i was like no no no, not in public like hmm. and so then he had started speaking english and so they were just so scared of yeah. um, the backlash they would get and the stigma. Yep. Um, and like I mentioned, like post 9-11, yep. don't like yep. forget about it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. Janine, can you describe your previous volunteer work and why you decided to become a volunteer? 
Yeah, so my parents brought us up very aware of how lucky we are and um, how important it is to give back to community. Yeah. Um, and in our culture as well, it's very communal. It's not um, individualistic at 100%. all. And so we always see everything as a collective. Um, and so I volunteered throughout high school um, and also at university I did some volunteering as well. Like I um, mainly tutoring actually for the Smith family and River Nile and mm-hmm. other organisations. Um, and most recently I was um, the continuous quality improvement officer in the health program of the ASRC, mm-hmm. the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Yep. Um, and currently I'm doing some work um, for Road to Refuge and I'm also the president of um, Crossing Borders Melbourne. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> a, that's a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's awesome. I love seeing I love seeing women in power. So <laughs> you go, girl. <laughs> be really Thanks. proud of yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Crossing Borders? Yep. So um, Crossing Borders is a student-run organisation, and it's Australia-wide. So there's one in every university, well, pretty much every university in Australia. And so oh. I'm the Melbourne University president. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so the aim of Crossing Borders is um, to improve refugee and asylum seeker health through direct assistance, education, advocacy. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do, like, lots of different events. We do detention centre visits. We do um, meal shares with people living in sanctuaries. So we all bring a meal and we have dinner with them. Um, and then we also do, like, film screenings. Um, mm-hmm. So we recently did a screening of Ai Weiwei's movie Human Flow, which oh I highly recommend. God. It's amazing. Literally, I, we had an interview just before and I was talking about it because I watched it when it came out in the cinema and I, like, bawled my eyes out. Yeah, and then I so watched good. it yesterday again. And just, like, the feeling it gives you because it makes you realise like it actually made me realise the work that I do the all the advocacy um, and seeing everyone else do it really motivates me to keep going mm-hmm. and just hearing the stories that Ai Weiwei like so beautifully captures is just yeah. it it's amazing. And the amazing thing about human flow as well is that I feel like there's very little spoken word. So it like mm-hmm. transcends culture and language yep. and everyone can relate to it. And I think exactly. that's why it's one of the reasons why it's so powerful. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. It's so good. Yeah. Yesterday I watched it like again and I told, because we watched it in politics and I was like to my teacher, okay, I'm not going to cry. She's like, okay. And I didn't cry. <laughs> <laughs> I like cried everything. So <laughs> um, Janine, what inspired you to study a master of public health? So I initially, my undergrad was in biomed, um, yep. and I originally thought I wanted to be a doctor, um, <laughs> as all? many like Arab people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I realised that like patient-to-patient impact has such a profound impact, but it's only in an individual level. Mm-hmm. And I just saw my ability to make a change is so much bigger than that, and I wanted to make a change at a population level, yep. um, which is why I did public health. Um, and the reason I went down the health path at all is because um, wherever I went growing up, um, health is the one, well, one of the, as well as education, one of the one things that you can see everywhere in the world that the rich have so much access to and the poor don't have any access to. Mm-hmm. And given that it's such a basic human right, something that is so wrong with the world we live in. And so that's why I decided to, to, to go that. down the health path. Yeah. yeah. Ties in really well with what you do with crossing borders and all the advocacy work you do. So you, you manage to like tie in your education and what the information that you get day to day at uni to help you in the what work that you do you know, outside yeah, of uni. And it's amazing like now that I, because I work in public policy at the moment, the things that I learn at uni are so, so applicable to mm. my work and it's so mm-hmm. nice to have like complementary 
things um, mm. happening at the same time. Yeah, That's definitely. So yeah. yeah. I'm glad you didn't do biomed. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm glad I didn't as well. Yeah. yeah. I think like Sarah and I can kind of relate because in high school we always try to engage ourselves in all the activities that happen around like whether it's public speaking or hosting events and stuff like that and all those skills that we learn also tie in in the work that we do here in our podcast it helps Mm -hmm. us with our interview skills and our confidence so yeah I mean I guess this is a problem with like the learning model more generally and in that like people learn things in a classroom and don't really think about what happens outside and I'd like to see in my lifetime a new learning model where people are actually learning and experiencing and applying at the same time yeah Mm. yep 100% is that one of the things that you'd like to do in your future because you know you're already like you know um, so many you know crossing borders might as well like introduce an education (laughs) yeah well I think so they talk about like the social determinants of health I don't know if you guys have heard about them Mm -hmm. but it's like Mm -hmm. how like Health is pretty much determined by your education, your housing, your gender, like SES, like all that mm. sort of stuff and how they're all intertwined. And so I kind of feel like you can't do public health without taking into consideration all these other social determinants, which mm-hmm. are really important to consider. Mm-hmm. And so I think even just like organically, education will like infuse itself into my career, um, mm. hopefully. Yeah, yeah. I see mom, that happening. My mum was a PhD in education policy, so I feel like um, I'm almost like programmed <laughs> to, <laughs> to, do, to do education. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the Arab genes. Yeah. <laughs> what was it like to work for um, Care International at the Azraq refugee camp in Jordan? Yeah, so I went to um, Jordan like last July, so July 2017. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing. Like I learned so much and it was a really eye-opening experience. Having said that, I was really surprised at how unsurprised I was. Mm. Like I was so used to seeing, because we were brought up so aware of our background, I was so used to seeing camps and I was so used to seeing poverty and um, all that sort of stuff. And so when I went there, I was actually surprised at how normal I found it, which almost in itself is quite telling. Yeah. But because my grandparents got married in a refugee camp and my dad and all his siblings were born in one, I felt like I was getting, like, insight into what that generation would have gone through, yep. which was really amazing. And mm. you hear all these stories and you never really can apply them to a scenario. And so going there really enabled me to apply it um, to what they would have gone through. Mm. Um, and when I was actually there, there was actually two weddings and um, a few babies were born, like, while yeah. I was at the camp. Wow. And so I felt like I was really getting to see, like, what that generation... Yep. would have gone through um and mm. in terms of like I was doing um some monitoring and evaluation work for like so pretty much assessing the impact that Care International has in the camp because they've got lots of different programs yep. um and from that regard I learned a lot as well in terms of like how you measure impact um in a refugee camp and um how you make sure that the programs that you're doing are actually benefiting the end user which is the the people mm. the refugees living there so mm-hmm. um it was yeah. great on like a personal and a like professional learning yeah. level i wanted to ask going to a refugee camp and knowing that you know it, it holds such value for you because of your family's history how did you manage to separate your personal and professional life and how did you not like hide your emotions but you know keep them to the side because you them yeah out, balance yeah. them out because i know it's such a like a big thing for you but, you know, how did you not cry every two yeah. minutes? That's yeah. pretty much what so I'm getting really at. it was really funny. Like, when I th- like, the day before I went, I had a briefing in Hanman, which is the capital of Jordan, yeah. about what it was going to be like and um, 
Jama, Jamil, the guy that was briefing me, mm-hmm. he was like, um, so, like, what are you most worried about? And I was like, I'm really worried that I'm going to burst into tears as soon as I get there. Yep. And he was like, you know, I cry all the time. We all cry. We all have our moments. Just, like, don't do it in front of refugees, A, eh? mm. And, like, make sure you go somewhere and, like, private and yep. have your moment. Um, but day one when I got there, like, I was actually really surprised. I, I didn't cry once while I was there. Um, and which is really weird because I was telling you before I cried everything (laughs) Um, but yeah I think just like because I could connect on a personal level I think a lot of people cry because they can't imagine what it would have been like and obviously I couldn't imagine but having first-hand experience of my dad telling me stories and my granddad telling me stories it was almost like I was speaking to like my dad 30 years ago or Mm -hmm. my grandparents 30 years ago and so it didn't really feel like like, I already knew the injustice was there. It wasn't like a, yeah, yeah, wow, yeah. people live in camps and are poor. Like, I already knew that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I think, like, you um, going to the refugee camp in Jordan, I think all of this kind of ties into um, Shimamanda Agizi. She's an author, and she would always say the danger of, like, one single story. And I think it's such a good experience to be able to listen and, and uh, hear out what and see, each yeah. individual person at the refugee camp um, has experienced. And it really gives you, like, a better and wider perspective. Yeah, and they're all so different. Like, part of my work was... Um, so I was, like, going into the... So there's four villages in Azamat mm-hmm. where I was. And um, you go into each of the villages and you interview refugees about, like, the programs that CARE was um, running. And mm-hmm. part of my role was interviewing them in Arabic and then translating and inputting the data in English. Yeah. And, yeah, like, you have to ask them, like, where are you from? How many kids mm-hmm. do you have? And you have to ask all these, like, identifying questions. And, like... Everyone is so different. They've all come from different areas of Syria. They all, you know, have different backgrounds and different stories of how they got here. And some of them wanted to migrate. Some of them didn't want to migrate, as in, like, to come to Canada or Australia or wherever they wanted to go to. And I think it is really important because there is this whole boat people narrative that everyone's the same and everyone arrives by boat. And it's really um, easy to distance yourself when it's all happening in Nauru and Manus and be, like, Mm -hmm. out of sight, out of mind. And it's Mm -hmm. really important to remember that... These are real people with real stories and yep. every story is different. And yeah, a lot of people think, oh, but you're not really a refugee, you came by plane. And it's like, well, mm. actually we all like have different stories and um, arrive in different ways and do different mm-hmm. things when we arrive here. And I definitely agree with yeah. you. Yes, 100%. Out of sight, out of mind, you know, with people just ignoring what's going on just because it's not happening right in front of their eyes. It's so important. And that's why I guess the advocacy that you do and we do and so many other people that have, you know, in the same community as us, you know, even if you can't see something or have been impacted by something directly, um, it's still be able to change. Yeah. so important. You're still able to change it. That's right. Yeah. And I think it's like because we've all been affected directly. So I feel like it's easier for us to empathize and to advocate and to do something. Mm-hmm. And it's the real challenge is how do you get people that have no idea what it's like? Yeah. To, to care, essentially. That's, like, exactly. the challenge. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. So um, what kind of inspired you to go into the field of public policy? Yeah, so I started in public policy around January, so mm. I, haven't been, I haven't been in it for that long. And it was kind of infused into my role at ASRC, so I kind of got a bit of a taste of there. And all my previous work experience before that was in the non-profit sector. Yeah. And I kind of came to this realisation that if we actually had good policy, we wouldn't really need all these charities. Mm. Like, if we had good education policy and if we had good health policy and if we had good asylum seeker policy and immigration policy, there wouldn't be a need for 
all these charities. Having said that, there's always going to be a space that policy can't fill that charities need to fill. But um, by having good policy, we can alleviate that burden. And I kind of was like, if you want to go to the real grassroots, like real start of the problem, it's actually in policy. And so mm. um, that's kind of why I decided to go into policy. And while I do, like I still do some work for Road to Refuge and yeah. that sort of stuff. So I still always like charities as my and NGOs as like my passion. But mm-hmm. um, in terms of making an impact, I just feel like policy has such a big effect on the everyday Australian and um hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. I completely agree with yeah. you. Yeah. So I have to get to the root of the problem to be able to solve it and understand yeah, it. Exactly. Yep. How did you get the confidence to be able to run things like this, even though there's there's so much stigma around such like a um a big issue topic yeah. as well. Yeah. I feel like because if I was in your position I don't know. I'm not sure if it's like an age thing that I'm, oh, yeah, I'm still in high school. I'm not sure if I'll be able to, to like, start up something like this. But how did you get yourself to do it? And gather up the courage to do something different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, funny you should mention age because I actually um, was really embarrassed of my background until I was about 19 or 20. So mm. I didn't tell anyone that I came from a refugee background. I People, like, knew that, you know, I'd grown up for a bit overseas and that sort of stuff. But... Like, they didn't know I was Muslim. They didn't know a lot of things about me because mm. I because there was so much stigma in the media. And the first person I told, I was about 19 or 20, and um, it just came up in conversation, and I decided to tell her. And she was shocked. She didn't believe me. She was like, what? But, you know, like, look at you. Like, you're at mm. uni, and you dress well, and you have an Australian accent, yeah. and you're fine. Like, I don't really see you as that. And that made me realise that for so long, politicians and the media have been telling our story for us. Oh, yep. That's really true. And I was like, okay, well, I felt quite offended, actually. And I was like, well, actually, it's my story to tell. Who do they think they are? (laughs) Um, And so I decided to reclaim it, and I did that by getting involved more in the refugee sector. So before then, a lot of my charity work was nonspecific, so I just kind of did things in lots of different sectors. And then um, when I felt confident enough to kind of like, this is the other thing, like you have to like come out as a refugee now. Mm. It's like this thing that you have to like hide and yeah. then when you're ready you tell people. Yeah. It shouldn't be like that. It should just be, you should be part proud of your of identity yeah. that yeah, you're yeah, proud yeah. of but yeah. not everything that you are either. Exactly. Made a new friend recently and I kind of, I don't know why, but I was kind of waiting to tell them like I'm from Syria and I do a podcast and I like done this and that and I'm a migrant and things like that. And I don't know why, but you shouldn't, like it's not like something that you should just like wait and just tell someone that, you know, you yeah. should just come up in a normal conversation yeah. and they shouldn't be shocked about yeah, it either. But then again, it takes a lot of courage to be able to say that to, yeah. for people to come into terms with their identity and their background. Because when I was in like year six, year seven, year eight and like halfway through year nine, <laughs> yeah. um, I was ashamed of it. I would always yeah. be like, oh yeah, I'm Australian, you know, that's it. End of Arab. conversation. Yeah, I'm Arab, Middle Eastern, yeah. but never Syrian because I just thought people would be, would would think that I like I like English skills and you know think and that I'm trace weird it back to whatever they've seen yeah. on the media yeah and, and, and being Palestinian as well like it's so politicized and you're scared of like who to tell it to like if yep. someone has a specific opinion about the conflict mm. you're too scared to tell them because then they'll be like oh so what do you think of this politician exactly and I'm, like, I'm just a human like leave me alone like, <laughs> yeah. I'm not a spokesperson yeah. for like the whole refugee population yeah. or the whole Arab population or the whole 
Palestinian population like mm, mm. I think that like that happened to me as well because mm. I did like a model UN and I had to represent Syria everyone would come up to me during like caucus time where you could just like talk with all the other um, delegates and it'd be like what do you think of this what do you think of that and I'm like I have no idea so I think that that like inclined me to be able to learn more about my background yeah and that influenced me to take up subjects like global politics at my school just to learn more and get uh, more information because next time when they ask me I actually want to answer yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the thing is as well like because I did a lot of model UN when I was at school as well yeah <laughs> I loved it um and and I never picked a country like was... Lebanon or Palestine oh. because I didn't want to have to I it was like a defense mechanism like I don't yeah. have to defend my own country in like a political setting mm. because I didn't want to have to think about like the corruption and the poverty and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff so I just like always like asked for like I'm happy with any country just yeah. not Palestine or Lebanon so yeah that's fair enough because you've got like an emotional attachment to it and yeah. so do I but I think it was kind of a bit of like me being naive like thinking oh if I don't choose Syria then like someone else will choose it they'll probably be like and misrep- oh, misrepresented exactly yeah. and I was like it was just, just be dumb for like the Syrian not to go for Syria yeah. so I was like I'm just gonna do it yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But it was such a good experience for you. And I can definitely, like, see how much knowledge that you gained and how, I guess, both of us, from your, like, camp experiences and from us doing the show, we've come to, like, definitely be more confident with our background and things like that. And that's so important. And I feel like everyone goes through that at different times and at different stages. So, yeah, just to make sure that people, like get to that point it's yeah it's really it's all like uphill from this and it was really hard for me at first I feel like the biggest challenge I'm only 24 so I haven't had like a very long career but the biggest challenge so far has been that um separating like emotion and like when you argue something or when you debate something separating your emotional beliefs and like the logic Mm -hmm. and I think that just came Mm -hmm. with practice because for a really long time I talk about an issue I was passionate about and I was just too passionate that I start crying Mm -hmm. and so realizing the importance of having a logical um logical statements that flow and you know separating the emotion for a while and you know having your emotion fuel your logic as opposed to like overtake your logic yeah yeah 100% that's really good I think I might quote that yeah (laughs) yeah so um in your own words why do you think it's so important for refugees like you to stand up for other refugees and establish organizations to support them yeah so I think this like comes back to this whole idea that I was so embarrassed of my background Mm -hmm. and um I know like I'd like to think that there's like a 16 year old girl out there who's like ashamed of her background too and by seeing someone like me so openly and confidently and proudly talk about it she'll feel confident to talk about it too and for every person that each of us talks to like hopefully we can get a good enough proportion of the Australian population to actually gather some momentum and for people to actually start caring I just don't want anyone to have to go through the shame or have to feel ashamed of their background like I did for a really long time Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's why I'm such a fierce advocate and because it's just so much injustice that needs to be fixed and um, there's I always think about survivor guilt and how I feel so guilty about how lucky I've been even though it's at the end of the day it is just luck Mm -hmm. and um, a lot of stories I hear that are um, a lot more brutal than mine I'm like that could have easily been me and I think it's really important Mm -hmm. to realize how much luck plays in where you end up Um, and it sounds so cliche but I almost feel like I've been blessed or lucky because like I believe in God like God believes that I have the like power to 
to use that luck in a positive way yeah, to exactly. make change. And so that's kind of why, yeah, that's kind of what we drives do me. What you yeah. Do. yeah, I completely agree with you. Yeah, yeah. I think we both resonate with that because we've been so privileged and lucky to to um, be able to have these opportunities yeah. and come to a beautiful country like Australia. Yeah. I feel like it's our yeah. duty to pay back. With yeah, yeah, yeah. And especially yeah. when like we're all really young and having like the like the abilities and opportunities to share our own voices and have the confidence to talk about our own backgrounds and like you said inspiring younger people who still might have trouble like telling their friends about where they where they're from or you feel embarrassed but I feel like that's why it's so important that we do what we do and we do what we can because we do it proudly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this is the whole thing like it's this whole I think, like, the main thing that needs to change in, like, Australian culture is the way that we perceive integration. So right now, uh, I think a lot of people, the majority of Australians, perceive integration as, like, it's the person who comes responsibility to integrate into our society. And that's not really integration, that's just assimilation. And the real meaning of yeah. integration is a two-way learning between the current residents or the current Australian mm-hmm. and the arriving Australian so that when people come, they don't feel like they have to let go of their culture and adopt the culture that's here yeah. Yeah. and I think until people start seeing um, immigration and integration in that way we're doomed <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah no yeah. I agree with you yeah 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 I think um, from um, hearing a lot of stories um, on the show we learned that a lot of people have to um, struggle to cope with you know their own morals and beliefs of uh, that they had back home and trying to find a way to balance through that but also learn new like um, cultural differences mm-hmm. that Australians have between immigrants and refugees so yeah like it's it's such yeah. a common thing to struggle with and I feel like we Maya said before we had a previous interview about what we would want people to know more about migrants and refugees and asylum seekers and we thought we like told them like be patient because it's really hard to differentiate between cultures that you've you've known your whole life and and beliefs that you've had your whole life and then come to a new country where a lot of people are different which is not necessarily a bad thing but it's definitely something difficult you need to like adapt to as well and like i think this also ties in in like a culture dominance that we 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 might have and people need to be able to like have their own culture but not be able to not like let it dominate others yeah you know but like you know make sure it's like a good balance Balance, yeah yeah. get the balance right Yeah. yeah and i think the media and how much the media plays into our perceptions and i don't think it's people's fault that they have these stereotypes because they've been breathing in this like smoke of propaganda their whole lives so obviously they're gonna believe like what they're told like it's almost like innate their response and Mm -hmm. so yeah by reclaiming our stories and by shifting the narrative and like all that sort of stuff we can kind of help people unlearn what they've been programmed to know and relearn how things actually are yeah yeah and I feel like that's um that's what kind of the FDAC campaign at Road to Refuge is trying yeah. to do as well. Yeah. So how have you like how have you been helping out with Road to Refuge and everything? Oh, so it's still very, very early days. Yeah. Um, so I've only had a few coffees with um, Sam, who's yep. from Road to Refuge. Yeah. Um, but um, they're running this In My Own Words program. Yes. Um, and so um, I'm going to be involved in running that, which I'm really excited about because I do think a lot of people um, – 
want to tell their stories but don't have the skills to do so and so what this program will do is it will equip them with the writing skills the public speaking skills the how to deal with the media skills advocacy skills to be able to tell their stories and reclaim their nar- their narratives which mm-hmm. is um i think what the sector is seriously lacking and in dire need of yeah yeah 100% yeah Boats Refuge is like such a good organization yeah, yeah we, awesome. mm. we had the pleasure of interviewing for that clive to launch their um meet the for that campaign, campaign. Yeah. yeah and it was yeah it was fantastic and now like looking back at that you know they've accomplished so much and we're like so lucky to be yeah. a part of it yeah 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 they're amazing Janine, do you have any advice for our audience um, in terms of how to support refugees and make them feel more welcome? I think the most important thing to do is be brave um, and not be afraid to speak out when you see something happening that's wrong. I think if you, yeah, if you are brave, that's the first step to kind of solving injustice. And there's a quote by Desmond Tutu that I love. I've got it written down here. Yep. So um, he says. If you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. And I think that's absolutely true. Like, we can't just sit in silence and expect someone else to make the change for us. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, speaking in silence is as bad as... Or saying in silence is as bad as having done the bad deed yourself. And so speaking up, being brave. Yeah. (laughs) 100%. Well, thank you so much, Janine, for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to hear your story and the amazing things that you do. Thanks so much for having me, guys. No, no worries. worries. You're someone that's like really inspiring. Goals. And I think, yeah, actual <laughs> Thanks, goals. Um, yeah, we look forward to seeing you more in the future and, you know, be proud so of what you, what you do. Yes. Thanks, guys. What you do is um, incredible. I'm lucky to be on this show. Oh, my God. Thanks. <laughs> no worries.